So about a month or so ago, I was talking to one of my cousins on the phone. His name's Isaac. And just to give you a little background on Isaac, he grew up very closely with me and my younger brother, Nick. We did everything together, uh, which of course means we played basketball together uh, in high school and in college. We lifted together. So my, my memory of Isaac, I don't see him very often now. He lives up north. My memory of him is, is of this great athlete. He's in great shape. But when I was talking to him on the phone, he told me that, uh, well, all of that had gone out the window for a while. He told me that he had started to eat poorly. He stopped taking care of himself, stopped exercising, and he slowly went downhill. Then, apparently, one of our favorite fast food chains, we used to eat at all the time as teenagers, came out with this $5 meal deal that he, uh, he just couldn't pass up. So he said he got that $5 box every day, twice a day, for a week. And after that, he said he took a good hard look at himself and he didn't like what he saw. He decided that enough was enough. He started getting serious again about his diet, about his exercise. I, I still had a hard time believing that things were really as bad as he said. So he told me, he said, well, I'll send you, send you some before and after pictures. And sure enough, he sent me a picture from that $5 box day and then a picture from several months later, and it was like looking at a diet infomercial on TV. He had really transformed himself. And then he told me, he said, yeah, maybe you could do that. Uh, and you could take before and after pictures and get in shape. I was thinking to myself, you don't know what shape I'm in. I haven't seen you in a while. But I did eat a gas station donut between services this morning, so maybe, maybe he was on to something. Because for a lot of us, you know, it can become easy to lose sight of our health. Uh, we start a few bad eating habits, start exercising a little less, and before we know it, we're living an unhealthy lifestyle. Ultimately, that can be dangerous. Unhealthy lifestyles can lead to shorter lives. And something similar holds true for the life of a church. Many churches begin in great spiritual health, where, where the believers, they're united together in pursuing Jesus and making him known. God's spirit moves powerfully among them. And then unhealthy practices sneak into those churches. All a little gossip here, lack of evangelism there, prayer goes out the window, and soon that church, it's, it's not united. It's not growing spiritually, it's, it's going downhill. It's unhealthy, and if those churches don't take a hard look at themselves and say enough is enough and return to spiritual health, those churches, they'll, they'll die. They'll close their doors. A lot of us might know what it looks like for our own selves to live a healthy lifestyle, but the question is, what does a healthy church look like? Well, that's what we're going to explore together in our new Healthy Church sermon series. Uh, this brief five-week series, what we're going to be going through before the next book of the Bible we'll be studying, and our focus is going to be on what are some of the defining characteristics of a healthy church. Because a lot of us, sadly, we, we tend to think that a church is healthy based on the three B's, budgets, buildings, and bodies in the seats. And it's true that a church should be financially sound and have facilities to meet in and believers to gather together, but but there's more to church, and there's more to spiritual health. And so over the next five weeks, 
We're going to look at just a few of those characteristics as we pray that the Lord would help First Baptist Church of Oxford to be a healthy, spiritually vibrant, gospel-going church. So if you would join with me, let's turn in our Bibles together this morning to 1 John chapter 3 as we see the truth that healthy churches must be churches filled with believers who love one another. 1 John chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible with you, encourage you to follow along. You can use one of the Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 987. Page 987. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 10. The Apostle John, he writes this. He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Let's pause right here for just a couple minutes. What's John saying? John is saying that the same way that obedience to Jesus is a defining mark of a Christian, so too is our love for one another. Loving our fellow believers is evidence of the fact that we've been forgiven by Jesus. We've been adopted into the family of God, that the Holy Spirit lives within us. That love is evidence of our salvation, that Jesus is our Savior, that he's doing a work in our lives. And we see that as we grow to love the family of Christ. In fact, the first fruit of the fruits of the Spirit, listed in Galatians chapter 5, is love. And that fruit should be found in the lives of all followers of Jesus. The question is, believers, do we... Do we love the family of Christ? Do we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Now, John gave the example of Cain. You know, Cain, Cain didn't love his brother Abel. You might be familiar with the story. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. Uh, these two brothers, they, they brought their offerings to God in worship, and Abel's offerings were accepted by God, but Cain's offerings weren't. Abel came to God in faith and in righteousness, but Cain... Cain came with all of the wrong motives. And instead of adjusting his own heart to do right and to honor God, Cain allowed his heart to be filled with envy, jealousy, and hatred towards his brother. So much so that all these things spilled over and Cain murdered his own brother. You see, Cain, Cain represents the world of unbelievers motivated by selfishness, filled with anger, hating others, unwilling to honor and obey God. Christians are not to be that way. Hate should not define our hearts. In fact, understand this, if our hearts are defined by habitual hatred towards others, there's a big problem. That's when we need to ask ourselves and evaluate, am I really in Christ and is he really in me? 
Such hateful intent like that is wrong. Such hate in the sight of God is as sinful as murder itself. Hate defines the world. Love is to define us, Christians. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 13, he looked at his disciples and he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So is that love in our lives? You know, it's interesting. There are some people you can talk to, and when you're talking to them, you just know from the sound of their voice what part of the country they're from, right? A lot of us know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to do impressions, but you know when you're talking to someone if that person's from Boston or if they're from way up north in Minnesota or from somewhere in the south. You just know, right? We've all been there. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm from Maryland. And in Maryland, uh, we, we all say that we don't have an accent. We, uh, we speak correctly. And everybody else just needs to get on board with that. But then I moved to some different states, and I was told that I say my O's weird. Which I'm having the sudden realization that uh, now some of you are going to be looking for that. So I have a lot of regrets in this moment. But the point is that there are a lot of those moments when people open their mouths, you know exactly where they're from. And you know, the same is to be true for God's people. The moment we open our mouths to talk to one another and to talk to others, people should notice that there's something different about us, believers. And when they see us and hear us, they should realize that we aren't bound to that same hatred and selfishness and boasting that's found in the world. By our love for one another, they should know that we belong to Jesus Christ. But okay, so what does this have to do with the church? Here's the thing. If love is supposed to be a defining mark of every Christian, then that means that love should be the defining mark of the place where Christians gather. It should define the church. And just as a Christian who fails to love others needs to repent of that and again begin obediently fulfilling the commands of Christ, so too the church that fails to love one another must quickly repent and return to obedience. Churches should be filled with believers who love one another. Churches that aren't, those are the churches that are filled with strife, with division, with anger. Soon those churches, they'll be torn apart from the inside. So, so what does a loving church look like then? Right, we're supposed to love one another. What's, what's that look like? Let's keep going in 1 John chapter 3. Let's look at verse 16. John said, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, not only should love define us, believers, but it should be displayed by us. It's good that in our speech we, we love one another, but it needs to go beyond that. It needs to go beyond mere words because talk is cheap a lot of times, right? Real Christian love, it's sacrificial. It gives of itself. Now, I understand that few of us may ever face the time where we would lay our lives down for one another, and John realized that too. That's why he gave some practical points after that. 
because we will face times when our fellow believers are in need. The question is, what do we do in those moments? And in fact, that's what James talked about too. In James chapter 2, we're told, he gives this example, that if a Christian sees a fellow believer who's cold and hungry, and then they come up to him and say, oh, my dear brother, you look like you're in a tough spot. Hey, God bless, be satisfied. And James says if that believer walks away without doing anything, although it's in his ability, what, what, what was the use in that? James calls that dead faith. I think John would call that loveless faith. Faith is demonstrated in our works, and so is our love. How can we say that we love one another, and then we don't pray for each other when we're going through trials? How can we say that we love our fellow believers, and then we don't open our homes and resources to one another in times of need? How can we claim love without demonstrating love? That's John's point. I understand that we might not even always see each other outside freezing because we live in Florida. We might not always see a believer starving. But we all have different areas of need. And through the eyes of Christian love, we'll be quick to notice those needs. A pastor once shared the story of how a a young mother, during a time of testimony in church, admitted that that she, she never seemed to find time for her own personal devotions reading the Bible, spending time with God. That's because she had had a lot of little ones at home that she cared for, and parents, you know, the time seems to melt away. So imagine that young mother's surprise when the next day she had a knock at the door, and when she opened the door, she saw two of the older ladies from church standing there, and the lady said, we're here to take over. We're going to watch the kids. You go into your bedroom, and you get started on those devotions. That's loving, right? But you see, those ladies didn't just do it on that day. They came back day after day until that young mom could establish for herself a devotional life that could continue on, even with the stresses of life. The point is that there are so many ways that we can love one another if only we will purpose to do so. Listen to what John said later. This is in chapter 4, verse 7. John said this. He said, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. I want you to think about something. You'll notice that God God didn't ever say, uh, Hey, I love you, lost sinner. I love you, world, and um, I hope that you find a way to get to me in heaven. Good luck. God never said that. No, no, no. God demonstrated that he loved the world by sending his son to the world so that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we might be saved. God did this when we weren't a part of his family. 
when we were separated from him, when we were his enemies, when he knew that the world would mock and spit on and crucify Jesus Christ, in all these things, God still sent his son. That's love. God demonstrated that love, and his people ought to do the same thing. Now, if God's love is the model, then that's why, as John has already said, our love needs to be sacrificial. But more than that, if God's love is the model, then that means that we need to love one another when it's hard. Even when that Christian hurts us, we still need to love them. Even when another believer has been unkind to us, we need to love them. We need to remember that when Jesus Christ hung there bleeding, dying on the cross, and the crowd mocked him and made fun of him, even in those moments, Jesus cried out and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If Jesus could love the ones that we would consider to be unlovable, shouldn't we love one another when we act in unlovable ways? See, here's the thing. When each believer is committed to loving one another, the church thrives. Because when another member is hurting, everybody else is going to come to help them. Or when one member rejoices, everybody else is going to rejoice with them. A church that's so tender-hearted, that's so attentive to one another's needs, that is a church that will strive towards spiritual health. It will be a place united in knowing Christ and in making him known. That church will have so much love pouring out for one another that soon it won't be contained in the walls of the church. Let me show you what I mean. I want to give you an example. This is in Acts chapter 2. So if you're following along, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're using one of those Bibles here in the sanctuary, you can turn to page 884. 884, Acts chapter 2. Uh, what we're about to read takes place during the time when Jesus, Jesus had already died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and now the church was taking shape. People were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. And what we're going to have here in Acts chapter 2 is this incredible description of those early believers. We're going to start in verse 42. It says this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Can you see the love in the early church in those verses? That they were devoted to learning about Jesus together. God moved powerfully among them as they shared with one another. Uh, they met daily together. They helped one another in need. They joyfully shared meals. I don't know about you, but every time I read these verses, I think to myself, I would love to be a part of that. And every time I think that, God reminds me that I can be a part of that right now, right here, by learning first myself to love the body of believers the way that we're supposed to. The early church loved each other so much, they always wanted to be with each other. When you love the family of Christ, you'll find that it's very easy to fulfill the command of Hebrews chapter 10, not to forsake gathering together. You'll find that you're the body of Christ regularly, not out of obligation, 
but out of joy. And I, I know that for some of you, this is true. For some of you, you're not here just one time a week on Sunday. No, you're here two, three, four, five times a week. We see you all the time. And you're here because you want to be here. You love your family in Christ. But there's something I want to be sure we don't miss in these incredible verses that came at the end of the passage. After reading about all the love and community and unity of the church, we're told that they enjoyed the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It is not a coincidence that a loving church is a gospel-going church, is a church that impacts their community for the sake of salvation. Because you know what? The community sees that love and they say, I want to know a little bit more about that, what that's all about. And more than that, the church that loves each other will love the lost. Because their love for one another will be so great, they'll desire to see other people come into the family of Christ. They'll be so in love with the Savior, they can't help but share him with others. But if the church can't love one another, how will they ever love the people outside the church? If we can't love those who are family in Christ, well, then we'll certainly fail to love those who John had said hate us. If the church can't love one another, then how can it ever pursue the mission of Christ? Love should define us. It should be displayed in our actions. Then it'll overflow. It'll pour out of our hearts into sharing the gospel with others. I want to share something with you, church. I don't know if I've ever shared with the church before. But for many years now, I have had a prayer that I brought to the Lord. And I've asked that the Lord, if he is willing, that he would allow First Baptist Church of Oxford to continue to be a part of this community until Jesus Christ returns. So long as we remain a gospel-going church. You see, the other part of that prayer that I have prayed many times is that if we fail to be a church focused on sharing the gospel, that the Lord would replace us with a church who would do that. You see, our, our community doesn't need a self-centered, spiritually dying church. Our community needs a living, loving church that points people to the living Savior. So what's a healthy church? For one thing, it's a church where the believers love one another. Because where love fails, so does the church. Now, please understand, I want to make this very clear. I do believe that FBCO is a church filled with love. I do. In fact, that is perhaps the most common thing I hear from visitors after they have come to our church. They'll say things like, we felt very welcomed. It's a friendly church. They'll say, it seems to be a very loving church. In fact, that's what drew me and my wife here years ago, that this is a church filled with love. And my prayer is it would always be filled with believers who love one another. And let's not forget that there are areas we can all grow in learning to love one another more. So believers, let's each ask ourselves today, how can I love my fellow believers better? How can I love my family in Christ today? How can I love them this week? How can I demonstrate that love? See, here's the truth this morning. The church that loves one another is the healthy church that impacts others. 
And I really hope we will always remember that. That the church that loves one another is a healthy church that impacts others. Let's be that church that impacts others. Before we close, I just want to share these words. Uh, An unknown author once penned the words of this poem. I think that I shall never see a church that's all it ought to be. A church whose members never stray beyond the straight and narrow way. A church that has no empty pews, whose pastor never has the blues. A church whose deacons always deek, and none is proud and all are meek. Where gossips never peddle lies or make complaints or criticize. Where all are always sweet and kind, and all to others' faults are blind. Such perfect churches there may be, but none of them are known to me. But still, we'll work and pray and plan to make our own the best we can. And believers, let's make First Baptist Church of Oxford the very best church we can, beginning in our own hearts. Let's love one another. That's my prayer for all of us. But friend, if you're here today and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, I want to share something else with you about this church. I want you to know that this is not a perfect church. But we serve a perfect Savior. And I want to tell you why that matters in your life, that Jesus is a perfect Savior. See, the Bible is very clear that all of us have sinned. We've broken God's commands. We do when we lie and cheat, steal and lust, take God's name in vain. We all know that we've done bad things. The Bible is also clear that the just punishment for those sins is that after this life we'll be separated forever from God in a place called hell. And you see, the problem is we can't make up for our sins. No amount of good works, going to church, being generous, being kind to others who are cold and starving. None of these things make us right in God's sight. We are quite hopeless. But in his great love for you and me and this whole world, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus did the thing that me and you can't do. He lived a perfect life. And at the end of that life, Jesus willingly died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. After Jesus died, he was buried, and three days later, powerfully rose from the dead, proving he is who he said he is. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. He's the only one who can give us eternal life. And the Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you have never done that, please understand that you can do that before you leave today. In just a minute, Pastor Richard will come. We'll have a final song of invitation. I want you to know that you can come to the front and talk to me more about this. We can pray together. You can give your life to Jesus Christ. I want to give you that opportunity. I want to give you that opportunity, even as we pray, to do that right in your seat. And I just want to share with you very briefly five things, just five of the things that will happen the moment you give your life to Christ. Please know that the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of all your sins. The moment you give your life to him, Jesus will forget all of your sins that you have ever committed. In that moment, Jesus will come and live within you and allow you to live and love in a way you have never lived and loved before. In the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ, you become a part of the greatest family on earth, the family of God. And in the moment you give your life to Jesus, he'll give you eternal life. The guarantee that when this life is over, you'll be with him forever. Oh, there's so much more than that. 
Those are just five of the things that will happen the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ. I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. Would you pray with me? If you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, friend, like I said before, you can come down during this final time of invitation. You can pray with me. We can talk about that. But if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, you can do that right now. No matter what things you've done or where you've been or what you're going through right now in your life, please understand, Jesus, Jesus wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to bring you into his family. And if you're ready to take that step and give your life to him, then you can go to Jesus Christ in prayer right now. And you can admit to him that you know that you're a sinner. By faith, you can tell him that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, and you can give him your life. And friend, I promise you on the authority of God's word, Jesus Christ will save you. Dear Heavenly Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who have given our lives to Jesus, teach us what it means to love one another. Show us how we can do that each and every day, each and every week, how we can demonstrate that love to each other. Open our eyes to the needs that our fellow believers have so that we can mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. We can bear one another's burdens. We can really love one another. And Father, I pray that that love would pour out from this church and that we would be faithful to share the gospel with this community because there are so many people who need to know how much you love them, that you want to forgive them and save them. Give each of us the chance to share that with someone today. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who still hasn't made that decision to give their life to Christ, that they'd come forward that they talk to me about that. They wouldn't leave before talking to someone about that. I pray that if there is any believer here who has something that they need to confess to you, a lack of love in their life, hatred towards someone else, that they would repent of those things this morning. That they would come forward so they could be surrounded by other believers. I pray that if there's anyone who needs to step forward for baptism, that this is the day they'd follow in obedience and do that. Father, help First Baptist Church of Oxford to be a church that pleases you so that we can be a church that points people to you. Father, we love you. For you proved long ago when you sent your son that you love us more. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.